right. You're going to have to bear with me a little bit because my husband is not here, and he is normally the one who gets me set up on my Bible verse or my sermon. So I am figuring this out for the first time. Here we are. Okay, I found it. No one worry. Thanks for your prayers. I'm not going to just be winging it today. I was like, maybe I can wing it. Huh? We'll see. All right, so we are wrapping up our um, series today on following Jesus, on discipleship, on what it actually means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And this has personally been one of my favorite series that we've done in the two years that we've been here. Um, I really enjoyed it. It has spoken a lot to me. And I've heard the most feedback from you guys on ways that it is actually challenging you and growing you and things that you're implementing in your own lives. And I am so excited to hear that. But what we've covered pretty much is that to be an apprentice of Jesus is to order your life around three goals. Number one is to be with Jesus. We have to be with him. Before we can start acting like him or doing what he does, we have to be with him. You have to be with someone to know them, spend time with them, quality time. Number two then is to become like Jesus. We need to be able to become like Jesus, and that takes time. That takes time to figure out, to figure out how to work through that. Um, and then number three is to do what Jesus did. We be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then do what Jesus did. So we're going to start off today in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. So I'm going to have you guys turn in your Bible so they are in your phones. And while you do that, Luke chapter 9, I'm going to get myself a water bottle. Or else I'm going to lose my voice from singing and talking all day. All right, we're good. Did everyone hear the plastic rustling back there? Now we'll see if I can open it. All right, is everyone in Luke 9? Someone come open this one. <laughs> all right. Luke 9, starting in verse 18. One day. Thank you very much. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. We've talked a lot about silence and solitude, spending time with Jesus. One, only his disciples were with him. And he asked them, Why, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, this is our key verse and we brought it up several times. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will die, and not, uh, will die before they see the kingdom of God. Because if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, 
Take up your own cross daily and follow me. That's what we're focusing on today. And it's not necessarily the uh, pep talk, self-help type fun verse that we like to focus in on. But it's what Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, this is what you'll do. So let's talk about the cross. If he says we have to take up our cross, we need to learn more about that. So the cross, you know, looks like that. Looks like that cross back there. It probably looked a lot rougher than that. They would take like a tree trunk, essentially, and put the thing apart from it. Then what they would normally do, it would have a little prop for your feet, and they would tie your arms on. But over time, they learned how to perfect it. They made it like an art form. They used it as a warning sign to others, the Roman Empire. They used it as a warning sign to others. Don't do what this person did, or you'll end up like they did. It was considered the most shameful way to die, so much so that it was never, ever, ever allowed to be used on a Roman citizen. No matter what the Roman citizen did, it was never allowed to be used on a Roman citizen because it was so shameful. They only did it on people, races that they felt to be beneath them. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. It would be like if Jesus today was executed on YouTube Live by a terrorist group, and they beheaded him with a machete on live YouTube after beating him and stripping him naked. It was the most shameful, humiliating way to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus said, take up your cross. He bids him come and die. It's not a call to you for a literal death, but it's a call to us for a metaphorical death called self-denial. And that's what we're talking about today. How the invitation to take up our cross is an invitation to self-denial, even though we're living in an age of self-fulfillment. And that's why this message is uncomfortable. That's why it's hard for us. Because everything around us says, whatever makes you happy, follow your bliss, do what feels right. And then Jesus says, take up your cross and die, which is completely opposite from what the world around us is saying. In one phrase, what is following Jesus all about? It's about self-denial. In one phrase, it's about self-denial. So number one today, you can fill in the blanks on your message notes in your worship guide. Number one, to say yes to Jesus is to say no to a thousand other desires. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to a thousand other desires. It's to choose individualism or to say no to individualism in order to be in community. In order to be in, con in an, an intentional community together. It's ex expressing, um, saying no to what the world says we should be able to express our sexual identity however we want. And instead saying that we're going to live it the way that God wants us to. It's saying no to how you spend your money and your time and your talents. These are all our desires that we have to the way, and saying I'm going to spend it the way that God wants me to. It's in how we treat people that we disagree with, even people we don't actually know and how we treat them on Facebook. It's important how we do, it's saying no to what I want to do, to what my gut is telling me to say, and saying yes to the spirit of God in me and the way that he says to live. During the Crusades, this time where um, they were, 
sending out army, soldiers, warriors to kill everyone who was not a Christian. Basically, darkest time in Christian history that Christians in the name of Jesus would go out and slaughter people. But it happened. We cannot sweep it under the rug. The Knights Templar, they were called. They would be baptized in full armor. They had their whole entire armor on. They would be baptized to show that they were Christian. Except what they would do is they would hold their sword up out of the water. So all of them would be baptized except their sword. As if to say, God, you have all of me except what I am going to be doing with this sword. Which is ironic because they were supposedly doing it in the name of Jesus. And if you think about that, what if we all had honest baptisms where we come up here and we have our like hot tub, because we have a hot tub up here for it. We come up and we have our hot tub and we get in and we're like, all right, I'm about to be baptized, but I'm going to hold up my iPhone because I just can't quite give that to God. We're baptized. Everything except the iPhone is baptized. Well, we've had honest baptisms where I have a picture of my boyfriend or whatever, if that's what you do. You come up here and I'm surrendering everything but my relationship with my boyfriend. And we get baptized that way. What, if we had, what would it be that you held up? Because if we're honest, there's something that you've held up and not completely given to God. We all live this way. Some of us are just more honest about it than others. And Jesus' pattern he sets for all of his followers is death, burial, and resurrection. It's in every gospel. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's not a one-time event like baptism. It's daily. It's constantly this verse, to pick up your cross and follow him, to count the cost. It's in every single gospel. And we're to do it daily, repeatedly. So we're going to read Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice today. I spoke at Freedom Conference yesterday also. <laughs> so it's a lot on the voice. Um, Galatians 5, 16. We've also read this one again, and it is a great verse. If you want to start memorizing something, a chunk of scripture, pick one from here. Because it really lays out what Holy Spirit guiding our lives is like. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed uh, by the spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, then he's going to give a list. The results are very clear. The outcome. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling. Quarreling is in there next to sorcery and idolatry, guys. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. So here's his new list. That's what it looks like if you're not directed by the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like when you are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross. He brings it up again. That self-denial that we have to do to take up our cross and crucify them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, 
Let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. From this we see that your body is the focal point of your relationship with God. All that it's talking about, these are things that come out of our being, our physical being here, who we are. The result of not following the Spirit comes out in our physical nature. The result of following the Spirit comes out in our physical nature. The body is like the crux. It's where the tension lies. It's the crucible of the matter. It's right where these two worlds collide. Number two today is that our bodies reveal our relationship with God. Our bodies reveal our relationship with God. Our bodies are the battleground between these two worlds. This world, the first list of the sinful desires that we have of ourself. When it talks about self-denial, it's talking about our sinful desires. It's our base level desires. And then the other world is the desires of the spirit. It's our higher order desires. The things that are after what God wants, what God wills. And our body is kind of where these two hit, where the battle happens. It's when we have anxiety. It's when we're tempted. It's when we have urges and cravings and things of that nature. Every day we face this war or desire in our bodies and in our whole person. That's the tension that we're talking about today that needs crucified. A key task to following Jesus is to crucify our base level desires in order to live resurrection lives. If we can self-deny those base level desires, then we can be resurrected in full life. It's not saying end to life. It's saying die to death, essentially, because these choices, the base level desires, are leading you along a path of death. And it's saying, live up, resurrect to life, come to life in Jesus and the full life that he has for us. So there's all of these base level desires that we've talked about on this list, but sometimes even neutral or good desires we're asked to crucify from and move on. We can't do every single good thing and still be able to slow down and be with Jesus. So sometimes we have to say no even to neutral things or to good things to be able to live this life that he wants us. Luke 9.23, again, he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. You must give up your own way. Take up your, your cross daily and follow me. This is step one. It's step one to following Jesus. If we can't do this, we're never going to get anywhere. Because whatever it is we're holding up from the baptism Whatever it is we're saying, you can have everything but this, that's always going to be trying to pull us back constantly. So we're never going to make progress ahead if we can't give up our own way. Even if our way isn't necessarily bad or sinful, but is it God's way? I love that line in the song, Make Room, that we sing. I will make room for you to do whatever you want to because your way is better. And just trusting his way is better. And so I'm going to clear out all these things I have to crucify to the cross. I'm clearing it out to make room for him to do what he wants to, trusting that he is the way to the good life. Dallas Willard, we've quoted him a lot in this series. He's a Christian philosopher, and he's done most of his work on spiritual disciplines or practices or habits that are in the way of Jesus. He said this, self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God. It's better described as death to self. In this and this alone lies the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable 
foundation. He's basically saying nothing else can be built if we aren't first willing to die to ourselves, to die to our temptations, our cravings, our urges, our wants, our longings. If we aren't willing to die to those things and instead ask God to give us the desires of our heart, then we will be lost. Later on in Luke 9, starting in verse 57, it says this, as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's basically Jesus speak for I'm homeless. <laughs> so he's like, are you sure you want to do this? And that person didn't follow him then. And he said to another person, come follow me. And the man agreed, but he said, but first let me return home and bury my father, which is basically ancient Israel uh, speak for, but first let me get my father's affairs in order, get his will done and get everything in order, help him retire and get into retirement get everything in order for him. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. So we have people eager and chomping at the bit. We have people dragging their feet, but neither one of them ready. The problem isn't that this man didn't believe in Jesus. The problem is that he wasn't willing to pay the price to become an apprentice to Jesus. It wasn't a bad thing that he wanted to go home and do these things, but Jesus said the time is now, and so if you're going to follow me, this is what you have to give up right now. He doesn't ask all of us to do that, right? But he's asking all of us to do something. He's asking all of us to give up something. It's not apprenticeship versus atheism. It's not we are either an atheist or we are a follower of Jesus. That's not what it is. It's apprenticeship to Jesus versus this vague, non-committal, consumeristic faith that wants the benefit of Jesus without paying the cost. That's what we're up against. That's what we're facing. It's am I going to just be this vague kind of whatever name only follower that shows up and checks things off the list here and there to be a good person? And I avoid the big ones, right? I avoid the big ones. And I justify the other ones that I do. Or am I going to fully, all in, crucify myself to have Jesus' way of life? Jesus didn't give a great elevator pitch. This is something that I love about Jesus. He's always nice, you know. He's always, he's not like mean or blunt like the writer of the book of James. James is Jesus' half-brother. He wrote James. He is very blunt. He is just like, says it how it is, does not care how it come out. Some of you are that person. Some of you know that person. If you don't know that person, you are that person, right? You're the, I'm just going to say it straight up, straight shooter. Well, Jesus was a straight shooter, but he had a little more tact about it. So Jesus was a straight shooter. He didn't have some fancy elevator pitch. Okay, this is how I'm going to get them. If I, if for those of you who don't know an elevator pitch, it's if I were to get in an elevator with someone, for the length of time I'm riding the elevator with them, how can I sell them on what I'm trying to sell them on? How can I convince them of it? He didn't have some fancy prepackaged pitch. He was just straight up honest about it. And this is the other thing about him. Whenever the crowd would get large, whenever he was getting more and more popular, he would say something super unpopular. <laughs> After the Sermon on the Mount, like his main sermon that he was known for, there were thousands of people who left him. They left. They were not about it anymore. He said too many controversial things, too many challenging things. In Luke 14, starting in verse 25, it says, This large crowd, whenever he was getting popular, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. There he's going again with the controversial, unpopular stuff. You must hate your father and mother, your wife's children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. 
Otherwise, you cannot be my disciples. And if you do not carry your own cross, he says it again. You do not carry your own cross. And follow me. This was before he was crucified. He was just referencing what everyone knew when they walked down the road and they saw people crucified. If you don't carry your cross, if you don't get up there on that cross, if you're not willing to do that, metaphorically speaking, in self-denial, then you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? How many of you are like, yep, I have signed on with a house contractor. I'm going to build my dream home. And I have no clue how much it's going to cost. It's just going to happen somehow. I have $10 in my savings account. I'm just. But, you know, um, I didn't think about that. So now I'm in massive debt. And everyone, the contractor keeps calling me. And they've halted house. And now I'm homeless. No, you're going to first calculate the cost, see if there's enough money to finish it. Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation, if that, before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or this is another example he gave that was relevant to the day. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of a thousand could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you could not become my disciple without giving up everything you own. This one's like so modern day example for the king sitting down with his counselors. At least for me, this is what I think of. My son is having a tantrum. Me and Kyle have to go sit down together and strategize. Okay, what's the best route of action we're going to take? Are we going to go the ignore route? Are we going to go the sympathetic parenting route? Are we going to yell and scare him a little route? Like, which one are we going to do? You guys sit down and converse with each other, maybe call a therapist and be like, hey, how should we parent today? And figure it out first before you engage in war with the tantruming child, right? That's what it feels like sometimes. We got to do that. But we first have to plan or else it does not go well. We first have to count the cost and make sure we really are signing up for what we're signing up for. Because Jesus doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He wants us to be hot or cold. If you're going to say no to counting the cost, that's fine. Say no. He'd rather have that than you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you don't live like it. He would rather have that. Because it doesn't lie about who he is. If you're one way or another, you're in or you're out, it doesn't lie about who he is and taint his name to the world. Basically, when he was saying you have to hate everyone to follow me, he was saying you need to love me even more than the dearest love of your heart. Who do you love the most in this world and you cannot imagine living without? Do you love Jesus more than that? Does your love for that person look like hate in comparison to how sold out you are for Jesus? If not, that's what we're aiming for. If not, that's what we're working toward. If not, that's what this whole series has been about, to get to that point. He's not giving us any sales pitch. He just says count the cost. And he is telling us the cost and that it will cost. He's not tricking us, bait and switch, get rich quick. He's not doing, it, not doing you give X amount of money, you will get X amount of mansion. He is not doing that. He says it will be a cost. This is the cost, dying to all of yourself. Are you up for it or not? And it's going to cost you, especially at the front end, at the beginning. Luke 18, starting in verse 18, a religious leader asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus is kind of a side note. Jesus is like, why do you call me good? 
this is like totally apart from the point. He makes another point in it. He says, only God is truly good. I had a foster daughter once, and we had told her about this story and said, no one's good but God. And a therapist, I think I've told this story before, but it's worth sharing again. A therapist had these little icebreaker questions, and this was a ridiculous icebreaker because it's like the question of the century or of all time is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why are you asking that to like a 10-year-old in therapy? I don't understand. (laughs) Why do bad things happen to good people? She goes, she like looked puzzled. She was like very confused. She's like, no one's good but God. (laughs) So I was like, not even a question. I just solved the question of the world. No one's good but God, so bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things just happen to people. And she like solved it right there. Anyway, but Jesus is like, not only is he like, well, God's only good. He's also like, wink, wink, nod, nod. You called me God. <laughs> you know, he, that rhymed and I didn't mean it, but I'm going to use it again. So we're going to memorize that. Wink, wink, nod, nod. You called me God. I like that. Okay. Anyway, only God is truly good. But now he's getting back to the point, as are we. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely on your father and mother. So he just rattled off about half of the, the commandments. The man replied, I have obeyed all of these since I was young. Then Jesus, when Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you have not done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. That's not one of the Ten Commandments. That's not even what Jesus said was one of the greatest commandments. Why did he pick that one? Because he knew that that was the actual God of this man's heart. So it's not about all of us going out and selling all of our possessions, although we should think, what if God told me to sell all my possessions? Now, some of you are like maybe just out of college or something like that, and you're like, yeah, I have a box. I'll sell it. That's all I have, so we can sell the box. It's fine. But the rest of us, like, we may have some things established that we need to live. You know, we got to provide for kids. we got to do this and that. What if God did ask you to sell all your possessions? I don't want to think about it. That's a hard question. But he pointed to him the thing that was taking the place of God in his heart. Notice when Jesus asked him which commandments did he follow, he didn't say, you will have no other gods before me. Because this man had his possessions, his materialism at the front of a God instead of the God. But when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was rich. Number three today is we have to fully submit to Jesus' authority as king. We have to fully submit to Jesus' authority as king. For this man, the rich young ruler, the obstacle for him was money. For us, it might be money, it might be sex, it might be control, it might be a sense of security, it might be planning, it might be family, it might be politics, or something else, you name it. What is it that fights with your heart for God? People today live with this low-grade unhappiness. It says he became very sad and walked away. People today live with this low-grade unhappiness because they aren't able to take up a cross. There's that one thing they're holding up and won't let go of. There's that one thing they won't let be death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus. They're holding it up out of the baptism. People today live with this unhappiness because they're not able to take up their cross. And this message is not a popular teaching. It's like, if you want to shrink your church, preach this one, right? Like, hey, everyone, make sure you bury everything, kill off everything, hate your family in comparison to your love for Jesus, then you're actually a Christian, right? That I mean, all of us... Sh- hopefully, are a little uncomfortable with this teaching. I mean, it would make sense if you are. 
but we're supposed to be challenged. We're supposed to let the Holy Spirit take his finger and point it in our heart and twist it around a little bit and say, hey, this is the one for you. If you were the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and asked, he would have said this, go sell this, go get rid of that. What would he have said to get rid of? Your calendar, your schedule, your commitments. What would he say? What would he say to give? Your affections, what would it be? So it's not a popular teaching, probably even less now in the 21st century than at any other time before. There is a guy who wrote this book called The Divine Commodity. His name is Sky Jathani, and he said this. My secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than a messy relationship with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. How many of us maybe wouldn't have thought to say it that boldly, but it actually feels a little accurate? I want a divine commodity to do my will. I ask him to do my will. When I pray, I pray for my will be done. My kingdom come. Or do we pray your will be done? Your kingdom come. The new American dream says be true to yourself. Whatever makes you happy. Follow your bliss. Do what feels right. Follow your gut. That's the new American dream versus what Jesus says, die to yourself. Say be true to yourself. Jesus says die to yourself. It's taking what Jesus says and twisting it. Now today when people talk about freedom, they're usually talking about freedom to do whatever the heck they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, I'm not hurting anyone. It makes me happy. So I'm free to do whatever the heck I want. For example, there's a sexual liberation gospel. And essentially it says that any kind of self-denial of any sort of sexual desire or the way that you want to express your sexuality is thought of as not only behind the times, but it's considered repressive if it's from yourself. Like I am repressed because I am not doing exactly everything my body urges me to do. Or it's considered oppressive if it's from other people. That I would be oppressing you if I were to say, hey, there might be a better way to steward your sexuality. That that would be oppressive if it doesn't go with exactly what your own desires are. Anything less than that is not considered true freedom. Now take that example and apply it to so many other things in life. So many other desires and longings. We're either repressed or we're oppressed. And that is true freedom if we don't have either of those. And we can just do whatever we want regardless of what I say or anyone else says. I can do whatever I want if it's not hurting someone else. And to tell me otherwise is to oppress me. That's what it is today in this new kind of American dream that we're living in, to be true to yourself and do whatever feels right. We don't like today, especially in America, we don't like, but everywhere really, we don't like kingship, we don't like monarchy unless the monarchy is like on the cover of Time Magazine or People Magazine or something like that. We don't really like them. We don't like to have kings and queens. We don't like authority. We prefer democracy where every man and every woman is king. We're all kings and queens, right? We're all kings and queens. That's just the way that we prefer it. 
And, you know, this isn't like a political commentary. I'm not saying we need to go back to the monarchy. But I'm saying we need to look at, like, what is our culture shaping into what our spiritual life is like? How is it influencing what our spiritual life is like? We don't like submitting to kings. We call them tyrants or dictators. But yet Jesus is king. So we have to sacrifice what we like and prefer for here on earth to what God really wants us to do, to who he really is, and that we would act in accordance to who he actually is. To come under authority is to, of your own free will, surrender your will and autonomy to someone else. And we are very uncomfortable with authority. But we have to submit to Jesus' authority. There's an example of this in my life that I thought of immediately while preparing this message. And some of you have heard this before, some of you haven't. But um, we got married 10 years ago. We're coming up on our 10th anniversary this year, uh, next month. And um, we went to uh, be youth pastors at a church for about two and a half years. And we left there. to That was in northeast Indiana. We left there to move about three hours south into Indianapolis. And we were going to plant a church. We left that church saying we were going to plant a church. People gave us money. We started fundraising. We started, um, we got like a logo and a name and a website and all of our social media accounts. We were coming up with a plan. We moved to the town. We bought a house. We did all of these things. We had a team. We had people who moved with us, who sold all of their stuff and moved with us where we were. And then we went to the training and the interview. And they said, uh, come back in three to five years. You're not ready. And... Um, at that point in time, there's been worse days since then, but at that, that point in time, that was the worst thing. It was humiliating. Even on other days that were worse days, never been that humiliated before. All I could think about was all the people we were going to have to tell, I'm sorry, here's your money back. <laughs> I'm sorry we're not doing this. I'm sorry you moved three hours and this isn't happening. But then some people were saying, well, just go do it anyway. You can do it without them. But we had decided that we believed in this organization and that we were submitting to their spiritual authority. We thought it would be better to go with the wisdom of wise counselors who were spiritual authority and who had done it before, been there, done that, and follow their spiritual authority. And then it's not like they just left us out to dry. They gave us a plan, and we followed their plan. We moved back up to where we had come from, went to a different church. They said you needed a healthy church culture to be under. We found a different church. And you know, Pastor Kyle Mills was here a couple months ago. We went to his church, and we got trained under someone who had done the church planting. It was a healthy church. We received healing there. We started our family there. That pastor walked us through all of that hurt and rejection. It was painful, and it was the humiliating way to go and say, yeah, we'll, we'll quit, and we'll tell everyone it's not happening, and we'll change our pace. But it would have been prideful to say, we're going to do it without you, and then we probably would have fallen flat on our faces. <laughs> We definitely wouldn't have come to Iowa at that point because our paths would have been totally different. And God had a better plan. And he brought so much healing to our relationship, to our marriage. Um, we were able to, we didn't have any falling out with relationships with people through it. it. Coming under God's authority seems scary. Dying to your own pride to submit to his authority and the spiritual authority he's given you, it hurts it can be painful. You might not agree with it, but it pays off. It pays off in the end, and it pays off big time. 
There's something called the prosperity gospel. Some of you have heard of it. It used to be really fringe, like in the 90s or something. Everyone kind of viewed it as borderline cultic. But then it was like repackaged into self-help. And it became really trendy. So now it's super trendy. And it's repackaged and shiny. And a lot of people who are out there toting the prosperity gospel, you probably wouldn't even know it. This is why so many times I tell you to be very careful who you listen to. Always check it with the Bible. Ask some spiritual mentors about it. And be careful because it's repackaged and it's pretty. Satan was like the angel of beauty or something like that <laughs> when he was an angel. He knows how to look great. He's not really like pitchfork and thorns. Or uh, maybe it's not thorns. Horns, it rhymes. Um, anyway, Mark Sayers, who wrote Disappearing Church, said this, and he's talking about this prosperity gospel that you deserve and are promised health, wealth, and prosperity and everything, forgetting the fact that Jesus said he promised us that you will suffer. You will have trials. So it's preaching one side of the gospel without the other side. It says this, we suddenly imbibe the implicit prosperity gospel through consumerism and advertising, but also through viewing the lives of other Christians who seem to lead amazing, meaningful, pleasure-filled lives. We only have to troll through our Instagram feeds to find pastors, believing musicians, authors, and activists who seem to live incredible lives. These people uh, do seem to have the best of both worlds. They follow Jesus and get to travel. They live in cool neighborhoods, hang with really interesting people, have incredible marriages, or rock the single life and connect with the most amazing people. We do not recognize the way in which the implicit prosperity gospel affects all of us until our unspoken expectations are not met. We understand that God would ask people in the two-thirds world to give up things to sacrifice, but our heresy hidden under the surface is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny ourselves. We think for some reason God might not ask. God might not give us our will our way. And that's our heresy because we say, yeah, God says to take up your cross. I'm sure I'm doing that, but I'm also like a New York Times bestseller and I'm in a great house and I have the beautiful subway tile backsplash. I personally want. And I have a golden doodle that actually doesn't shed or mat no matter what you do to that. Now, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Like that he would ask others to sacrifice, but not us. What are we sacrificing? What are we giving up right now? Or do we believe that we don't have to? See, I don't know about you guys, but I want the best of both worlds. I want to be really generous, and I also want to be really rich. Right? Anybody else? Just me? I want character but I don't want suffering. I want to follow Jesus, and I also want to live like a celeb with my beautiful house that I can hire a housekeeper for because I'm not cleaning it at all. I want humility, but I don't want humiliation. I want kindness, but not people in my life to agitate me. I want patience, but I never want to have to wait. I want to hear God's voice, but I don't want to get up early and focus in on prayer. I want the life of Jesus, but I don't want to take up the cross of Jesus. Anyone else? We live in that tension. It's what I want and what I don't want, but what God's calling me to do. We need to open up today all that we are to the Holy Spirit. If you're feeling guilt and shame today, it's not from Jesus. Shame and condemnation is not from Jesus, but conviction, he's all about that. I described conviction once as the Holy Spirit giving your heart a little hug and saying there's a better way. And I hope that you're opening up your heart to the Holy Spirit and hearing that. 
there's a better way than what you're doing with this thing you're holding up out of the baptism. This thing you don't want to give to him. This thing that's in competition for your heart with God. There's a better way. An author named John Mark Comer said this, following Jesus is a thousand small deaths that lead to one massive life. Thousand small deaths that lead to one massive life. If you could bow your head and close your eyes. I want you to ask the question today, Jesus, is there an obstacle in between me and the future discipleship? Is there an obstacle between me and my future discipleship into becoming more like him? Is there something in my life that has to die in order for me to live? You have little note cards on your chair. It says the cross. White note cards. If you could get that in your pen. As you're asking the Holy Spirit, as you're asking Jesus this question, is there an obstacle in between me and my future tonight? Is there something that in my life that needs to die in order for me to live? As Jesus tells you that, as he whispers that, as the Holy Spirit's convicting you, I want you to write that. You don't have to put your name. No one's going to necessarily see this. What do you need to nail to the cross? What do you need to deny yourself? What do you need to give up to crucify with Jesus? Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. That's what following Jesus is like. Was it a sacrifice for that man to buy the field? Yes. But he got a really good deal as a result. He was rich beyond reason. And that's what following Jesus is like. In the economy of the kingdom, you can't outgive God. And as you're still praying and listening to the Holy Spirit, what as he reveals to you, maybe you thought you've given everything to him, but you're realizing there's something you've held out of the baptism. There's something you haven't crucified. There's something you haven't buried that he's asking you right now. Or something that maybe you did, but it's crept back in lately. There's a man named Jim Elliott. He was a missionary and he was martyred. He was killed almost as soon as he got there. He said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What in your life are you not taking with you when you go? We're all gonna die, so we can't even keep our own lives. It'll come eventually. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You and I have to count the cost. But don't just count the cost of following Jesus. Make sure you also count the cost of not following Jesus. What will it cost you to not be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus, we come before you today. Speak to us. Reveal to us what it is what it is that we've held back from you that thing if we were the story of the rich young ruler if we were that story he said I want to follow you I've kept all of these commands I've done all of these good things I've done all of these things you said to do what would you come back to us with today just imagine Jesus standing there in front of you and you're saying Jesus I want to follow you I want to give you everything I've done all of these things What's Jesus come back at you and said, well, there's one more thing you have to do. You need to get rid of this. You need to die to yourself in this. What is it? Write it down on that paper because in a moment, 
We're going to go back. If we could get the lights in the very back by the cross turned on. We've got a cross back here in the back corner by the prayer banner. And we've got tacks back there. We're going to take your note card as we go through this last song. And as a response, we're going to put it up to the cross. We're going to crucify ourselves, the thing that we have yet to do. You have one more thing left, he said. Whatever that is, he's pointing out to you today. We're going to put it up on the cross. Okay, we're going to sing Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus already counted the cost for us. He said, you're worth it. And we're not really worth it. He's so much more worth it than we are. So Jesus paid it all already. But because of that, now all to him we owe. So what?